นโมตัสสะมกุวะทูอะระหะตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะมกุวะทูอะระหะตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะมกุวะทูอะระหะตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะThe Dhamma teaching that there for this month uh, by Ajahn Chah, which says that there's an essential point of all good practice that everybody must eventually arrive at, and that is not clinging. Eventually, all teachers and teachings must be let go of. So there's an essential point of practice, all good practice. Of course, we can um, we can do a sort of practice that's a bit of this and a bit of that. But Ajahn Chah are pointing out that right practice, good practice, eventually, it's got to take us to the point where we realise this not clinging. And this not clinging it refers to everything, including all of our teachers and teachings, which is not a small thing, because we can get very fond of our teachings and our teachers, and and fond of, in the sense of uh, overly attached to. And it's understandable that we. Uh, feel good about them. I certainly, uh, well, I, I dread to think, quite frankly, what I would have done if I hadn't come across the Buddha's teachings. I, I do sometimes think about that. Think, what would I have done if I hadn't come across Dhamma? I usually see myself in the gutter somewhere, not, not looking very pretty. <laughs> And I'm serious. I'm not kidding. I, I, I think it's not a pretty picture. What would have happened? Uh, So I'm uh, hugely grateful, hugely grateful for that book by Alan Watts. I think I was given when I was at university many years ago. And I think I was 20 or something at the time. And then later on, coming across my first meditation teacher, and the rest is history, for which I'm very, very grateful. But uh, of course, those things that we're grateful for, we run the risk of becoming attached to. And what Ajahn Chah, out of wisdom and compassion, is highlighting this risk here: that even those things that we hold dearly, like our teachers and our teachings, uh, we can we can spoil them if we're not careful. Hmm? I've spoken before about that. Uh, That gesture by my lovely 
grandfather, my Yorkshire grandfather, who, who knew that I was fond, fond of, of uh, collecting insects. And, and um, one day he took me into the living room and, and he said, I've got something special for you. And there on the back of the couch was this beautiful moth, gorgeous moth with beautiful wings and really pretty moth. And, and he stuck a pen through it. And he saw it there, and he, just, he thought, well, oh, Keith will like this, and <laughs> he can put it in his collection. Well, Keith was a bit disappointed, actually. The Reverend Wilfred Duncombe there, he, you know, he might be a lovely old grandfather, but as far as I was concerned, there was something tragic about that. You know, you, you know it was beautiful, but you'd killed it. And that's what happens when we, when we cling. Even to something that's beautiful, we kill it. We hurt it, we damage it, and and if we're not careful, this is what we can do. This to our spiritual practice, uh, the spiritual exercises that we pick up in the beginning, with uh, hope, aspiration, and then eventually with gratitude and gladness and appreciation. If we are not alert, then we can spoil them. We basically we lose the track and we cling to them. So Ajahn Chah is highlighting this as a, as a risk. This is the essential point that all good practice must come to, even to the point of letting go of our teachers and teachings. Now, this is, um, it's a, you, know, you hear it and think, oh, that's, that's, that's helpful, that's a wise point. I better remember that. And, but then we've got to get more subtle. And, and um, I remember... As a new monk in Thailand, I'd been there for one or two years, and and a good friend of mine, uh, we were we were talking about this. I think I was down in Bangkok, maybe I don't know, getting my teeth done or or my visa or something. And um, and this uh, this other Western monk I was talking to about Ajahn Chah's teachings on on right view, and this you know right view is basically not clinging to any view. And this monk pointed out, he said, well, it sounds to me like you're attached to the view that you shouldn't cling to any views. I thought, oh, wow, didn't realize that was going on. And it was going on, it was. I was kind of going on about how great Ajahn Chah was. I was attached to my teacher. What had happened was when when I was uh, first there in Thailand and you hear all these different opinions about this teacher and that teacher and this technique and this monastery and and this teacher, he's a Sotapan and that one, well, he's a Sakadagami, that one, he's an Anagami, and, well, that one, he's an Arahant. And, you know, you've got to, of course, get the best teacher and this one teaches right view and, well, that one, he's teaching wrong view. And, and so, of course, I didn't want to end up with some plotter who was teaching wrong view. So I was looking <laughs> from my, you know, all my 22 years of life experience and... Uh, trying to check out which was the best place to go to. And, but this one question of, you know, right view, what is right view? And I read what the books say about right view and here the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the teachings on karma and rebirth and, and there's all these different interpretations on what that actually means in terms of practice. So I remember there was one period where a young monk, a disciple of Ajahn Chah, was in Bangkok, I think, I think it was uh, Warapanya, actually, some of you will have come across. Paul Breiter, quite well known for translating a lot of Ajahn Chah's teachings. And, and I asked him, what, um, how did Ajahn Chah teach right view? What did he say right view was? 
And uh, he replied to me, Ajahn Chah said, right view is not clinging to any view or opinion. And again, it was one of those moments, oh, that's different. That's different. That's, it takes you from the view, which you're trying to find the right one thereof, and then attach to it and think it's going to save your deluded ego and make you feel safe and secure again, so you can be kind of you know, spiritual and deluded at the same time. It's taking your attention away from that and actually looking at the relationship to the view. Even the Buddha's view, right view, that Ajahn Chah said, even the Buddha's teachings on right view are wrong view if we cling to them. And that, again, pulled me up short and said, all oh, right, that's something different. You've got to really pay attention to not just the view. Yes, there is right view. As I said, the Buddha's teachings are four noble truths. You study them, understand suffering, cause of suffering, possibility of liberation from suffering, and the past leading to liberation from suffering, awakening. And study that, understand that, and teachings on karma and rebirth, and you know, take that in, internalize that. That's the form. But the spirit is more than that. You know, we can have the form and cling to it. We can, like a club, we can go around hitting people with it. And therein lies the nature of all fundamentalist religions, that even if what is being said is true, if we relate to it in the wrong way, we cause ourselves and others suffering. So that was helpful to have that pointed out. But So the view, understanding, educating ourselves with basic Buddhist right view, but then also inspecting as we go along, as we go along, inspecting what is my relationship to this? Yeah. How does it feel? Feeling what it feels like, feeling what it feels like in the way that we relate to our teachers. Do we get overly intimidated by them mm. as we go along? Yes, we listen to the teacher. Yes, we respect the teacher. Yes, we receive and accept and acknowledge well he or she probably knows more than I do. That's why I'm holding them up as a teacher. But do we get overly intimidated with them? And if we do, is that something that I feel like the teacher is requiring? Or is it something I'm doing? This is part of practice too. This is not, so it's much more than just finding a right teaching uh, and then grasping it and thinking it's going to save us. That that is nowhere near enough. It needs much more attention than that. But having said that, it is still true that we need to educate ourselves with the basic teachings of right view. Like the Eightfold Path starts with right view, samaditi, sometimes refer, referred to as, as clear seeing. Samaditi. Samaditi. Ditti is view or perspective. Right view, clear seeing. Just like if there's something wrong with your eyes, you walk around, you stumble in all sorts of things and bang over and hurt yourself. That's the natural consequence of if our, our eyesight is, is uh, faulty. Well, if our spiritual seeing, if our inner eye is faulty, if, it's, if our way of seeing is distorted with wrong views, then we cause ourselves and others unnecessary suffering. So it's really important to educate ourselves with what is even common and conventional 
uh, right view. Because the other factors, the eightfold path, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration, these other factors, the eightfold path that the Buddha articulated as essential and I mean, you study and practice, actually none of them are right if we don't have right view. So the theoretical right view, but then also the spirit of it. How do we relate to it with our teacher and our teachings? What happens when we start to doubt the teachings? You know, maybe we can be impressed and gladdened and encouraged and supported by the teachings in the beginning. You know, the theory of Dhamma or meditation practice, like our meditation techniques. We give ourselves to them with confidence and enthusiasm and, and they can work for a few weeks, a few months, even a few years. And then we come up, a, boom, come up against something and it doesn't work anymore. We struggle to apply our meditation technique and it's not working. It's still not working. We try harder and we force ourselves more. And you're going kind to of force yourself to be mindful. We think it's mindful, but maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, struggling with your meditation, concentrating harder to the point where you stand up and your eyes are all out of focus and you, you fall over. You're throwing yourself out of balance. Well, it's, it's quite normal. Don't be surprised if it happens. It, it's what we do as we go along the path, but it's probably at that point we need to look at the way we're relating to our meditation technique. Yeah. Of course, the techniques have their place. You see, in that teaching by Ajahn Chah that I just quoted, in the end, all teachers and teachings must be let go of. Yeah. He didn't say in the beginning, he said in the end. Yeah. So in the process of moving forward on the path of awakening. We do use teachers and teachings and techniques. But we're mindful, hopefully, in how we relate to them. Are they really serving letting go or are they serving our compulsive habits of controlling and clinging? To some degree, it's going to be the latter. And we just need to be honest enough to see, well, that's what's going on here. You know, this is not working right now. Does that, that doesn't mean to say that the teaching is wrong or the teacher is wrong. It may just be the way I'm relating to it. Yeah. The effort that we put into the practice from the very beginning, we're careful as we go along, we're mindful as we go along. We're not, hopefully we're not just giving over all of our authority to the teacher or the teaching. We're, we're relating to them with respect, with carefulness, with mindfulness skillfully, not just using them to prop ourselves up. So it's not that we are getting rid of these things. And we can, as I said in the beginning, we can attach to the idea that we don't need teachers or teachings. That's possible. You know, all teachers and teachings have got to let go of, so we attach to that as an ideal, and so we treat teachers and teachings and techniques with disrespect or we're flippant or casual about them or we dismiss them and say, well, I'm going to figure it out on my own. Well, you can do that, but it's kind of unnecessary, really, because it's like you know, with a motor car, you know, you, you, you could build one from scratch if you want to, but you know, what do you end up with? Uh, may not last very long, may not be safe, when actually there's a lot of work, a lot of attention, a lot of care, a lot of skill, a lot of research has gone into building motor cars, and now you can get something that's quite safe and 
and reliable and does the job. You don't have to spend all your time recreating it. And similarly with the spiritual path, there's a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of research, a lot of experience has gone into how to progress along the spiritual path and how to be alert to the pitfalls and the difficulties that there are. So the essence that Ajahn Chah is referring to is really the essence of mindfulness. That this is really the essential point, that if we have a mindful relationship to our teachers, to our teachings, to our techniques, then they are going to continue to serve our letting go and moving forward on the path of awakening. If we forget mindfulness, well then the old egoic habit of trying to control and make ourselves feel safe and secure, that is clinging, can creep in and we're not getting the benefit anymore. In the beginning, well that enthusiasm, that energy and that aliveness, that vitality, that hope, that trust starts to get overclouded and we don't know what's going wrong. Well, doubt is not a symptom that there's anything wrong with the teachers or the techniques or the, or the teachings. Uh, doubt could be an indication that we need to change the way that we relate. Maybe this, this clinging thing has just crept in on another level. Yeah. And that's, that really is how it happens as we go forward. A lot of the issues that we have to deal with, the apparent obstructions that we come across in practice, you, put, you come across something and some attachment, some misidentification and you feel stuck and obstructed and you exercise all the skill, the kindness, the wise reflection, the patience, the energy, the consulting with dumber friends and you bear with it until something moves and letting go happens. Think, oh, I've done it, done it, great. Done that one, been there, done that. And then only to find a couple of years later it comes back again. And I think, oh, I thought I'd done that. I thought I'd dealt with that one. Well, we did deal with it on that level. And we've got to remember at that point, so we're now on a different level. We're not the same person anymore. We might think we are, but that's a symptom of our delusion. There isn't a solid, substantial somebody in the form that we think there is. There's definitely a consistent process going on. And there's a connection between that character two years ago and this one. But it is not the same person. Yeah. And here we are again, we've come back to this place and then we need to be agile enough, flexible enough to look at it again and to find where are we attaching, where are we clinging, what, where and when and how are we holding on to something, even if it's something as precious as our meditation, our spiritual teachers' techniques or teachings. So, so mindfulness, watchfulness, yeah. Really, and really taking this seriously because this is often where the problem is. You know, I've spoken before about that example of a good friend of mine who he uh, took about an apprenticeship as a carpenter. And uh, to mark the beginning of his apprenticeship, he had a very good uh, carpenter who had taken him on. And, and to mark the beginning of his apprenticeship, his father bought him a hammer. Now, a really nice hammer. I mean, you may not know it, but there, there are good hammers and they're really hopeless hammers. And this was a really good hammer. This wasn't some cheap, nasty, plastic-handled piece of junk. This was the real thing with a beautiful wooden handle. And so my friend was very pleased with this hammer and took it along kind of in his pouch there. And Well, one of the first things that he, the, the uh, carpenter 
instructor taught him was, well, you know, how you hold the hammer. I don't know any of you that have been doing a little hammering probably know that your instinct, so you've got maximum control, we control freaks that we all are, you like to be able to hold things tightly and have complete control. So you want to hold the hammer up by the head. You kind of bang, 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 you're yeah, holding the hammer. Yeah. Well, it's sort of okay and you do control it, but you're not getting much clout. The smart thing to do, and it's not obviously easy, but the smart thing to do is hold it by the tail. Not hold it by the head, right up by the hammer, by the, the metal bit, hold it by the tail. And it takes a while to learn, but you get a swing. You get a swing, and you, you train in this, and you've got more clout. You've got a massive amount, much more clout. And you, and you get really good at hitting the nail, and it goes much quicker and a lot less energy, and also a lot less impact, I imagine, on your wrist. So my friend was given the teachings, and he, he did it for a while, but then he went back to holding up by the head again. And So the patient carpenter diligently told him, no, that's not... <laughs> you, know, you hold it here, so you know, well, after a while, he's, uh, the carpenter took his hammer and basically sawed it in half. He says, well, you're not using that bit. There's no point in having it. <laughs> after that, he got it. <laughs> he got the message. Well, that was, you know, that was difficult teaching because this was the hammer that Dad gave him for the apprenticeship. And, well, sometimes teachers have to you know, give you a bit of a whack um, before you get the message. Or life has to give us a bit of a whack. And you want to you, you look at it like that that when we're suffering big time, you know, this is just because we're a bit thick. It's not because we're wrong. We're just a bit thick, that's all. We're slow. <laughs> and that's not bad. That doesn't make us bad. It just, you know, just, there has to be a little humility. Now, I know we don't hear a lot of that word, and it's a, it's a symptom of the serious wrong view that there is around these days. Is It's called egalitarianism, kind of related to communism and other such forms of serious wrong view. Egalitarianism, the idea that we're all equal. Now, how stupid is that? You know, we're not all equal. Now, okay, if you want to talk rights of access to the national health or, or such things, then education, then yes, there, there is obviously a place to talk about equality. But when it talks about our ability or our potential, we're not all equal. You know, this is this is a a great mistake that we make to, for instance, comparing yourself to some of the great spiritual masters of which you can download interviews with them or read books about them and access to all these wonderful teachings. And because of egalitarianism, we compare ourselves to them, thinking, well, I should be able to do this and I should be able to do that. Well, we can't. We don't have the same accumulated barami. We don't have the same ability and, you know, it's not that different from comparing yourself to an Olympian. You know, I mean, you're not Mo Farad, so you know, there's no point in pretending, or, or Sir Chris Hoy. You know, you want to go out for a ride on your bicycle, that's all right, but probably there's no Chris, Sir Chris Hoys in the room. And so you've got to exercise a little modesty when you jump on your bicycle and go out riding. Yeah? Otherwise you'll hurt yourself, or Mo Farad, and you take on a little jogging exercise. We can all do a little jogging, most of us can, a little jogging, and it's probably good for us. And most of us can ride bicycles probably, and it's probably good for us. But if we are caught up in the view that we're all equal, well, then we might bite of more than we can chew. And similarly with the spiritual exercises, it's not necessary, it's not necessary to be a spiritual gymnast. 
in my view. You you see this, I hear this often. And in fact, to be honest, I've seen it in myself. In my early years of practice, living with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tate, these great teachers, and you read about these great masters, and you compare yourself to them, and you think, to be making progress, well, you've got to be cracking the jhanas and reaching this stage of insight and that stage of insight, and you read Mahasi Sayadaw, and it's all laid out, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you say, oh, God, I'm hopeless, and I... You know, I don't know if I'm not even at the stage of beginning this stuff. So where does that come from? Egalitarianism. It's a serious form of wrong view. It's attaching to the view of equality, which doesn't accord with the reality. And so this, this issue of attachment on all levels of life, we need to be very careful about it. In our daily life, in our relationships with each other and but particularly on this occasion, reflecting on the, the spiritual exercises that we engage with, that humility is really important. Humility and agility go together. Humility and agility. If there's no agility, the opposite of agility is what? Rigidity. Another word for rigidity is rigor mortis. Basically, we're as good as dead. And you get hurt. If we're holding the hammer too tightly, you, you hurt yourself. Your wrist gets hurt. Your elbow gets hurt. Like holding a steering wheel too tightly, you're more likely to have an accident. Holding it too loosely, of course, we can similarly have an accident. A hammer can fly out of your hand and hit somebody. Holding it just right, that takes mindfulness. Now, contemplating mindfulness this way, not contemplating, you can read what the books say about mindfulness, that's very good. But mindfulness needs to be something that we embody, we feel. And this is likewise in our relationship to the teacher and the techniques and the teachings. We need to feel our relationship. When I'm, with, when I'm talking to the teacher, how does my right shoulder feel about it? Do we have enough mindfulness in our shoulders to have a mindful conversation with the teacher? How does my left ankle feel when I'm reading the suttas? I suspect for a lot of us, we're so disembodied, we're so up in our heads that we forget that we're not even all here. Now, you know what it means to be not all here. (laughs) It means to be a little bit crazy. And if we're a little humility, well, we'll factor that in. We are all a little bit crazy. Some of us actually are a lot crazy, seriously crazy. Uh, but there's something we can do about it. Now, what we do about it, that's Dhamma practice. But whether the Dhamma practice is going to make us more crazy or more sane doesn't just depend on the teacher and the teachings and the techniques. It also depends on how we relate to it. The spirit, the message, is are we clinging or are we not clinging? Are we holding too tightly or are we holding it just rightly? There's a right way of holding, there's a right way of practice. All good practice takes us to not clinging. But how do we get there? How do we know that? It's not coming from our head. How you're holding the hammer is not something that you know about by thinking. How you're holding a hammer comes by not just even being in your hand, but being in the whole body and in the head and in the heart. And so a wise relationship to the teacher and the teachings and the techniques is not one of clinging. 
I would suggest that the barometer for practice, or the orienting, the way we the way we understand our orientation towards practice is this this is what I'm willing to bow down to. This is what I love most. This is what I love most. I love truth. I love reality. That if that's the thought we're having, then I would suggest we can trust that. But just like if you love something, you, you love a child, you know how to hold it. Right? <laughs> if you don't love the child, well, you know, all sorts of things might happen. But if you love the child, and because little children don't have rigid, painful, contracted egos, you know, just this wonderful, undifferentiated, beautiful thing, you know, it's easy to love a child. And so when you love a child, you know how to hold it. And so I would suggest that's also an approach that we could have towards our teachers and teachings and techniques. The reason I bow down to this is because I love it. I love it more than anything else. And that way it will give us a trusting disposition, a trusting orientation, one that's not clinging. Thank you very much for your attention this evening. I am the Mangata Sadhu Kha <laughs>